there's very few people that completed the rehab that I went to that ended up staying clean. I just remember they had this meeting. And so all the residents go up to the meeting and they said, look around the room of the people in the room. Statistically, there's 80 people here. Two of you are going to stay clean. I just remember thinking, um, well, that sucks for the other 79 of you because one of those people is going to be me. The story of Tracy Helton this week on Upvoted by Reddit. Welcome to Upvoted by Reddit. I'm your host, Alexis Ohanian. We hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Heather, also known as you slash sailing short. It was awesome to see someone like Heather share her story of survival, teamwork, and even falling in love. This week's story covers a much heavier topic. As many of you know, Reddit has tens of thousands of communities where like-minded people can have a forum to discuss an array of topics anonymously. Sometimes this is as innocuous as r slash audio engineers, or cats standing up. Yet, this isn't always the case. This episode is going to focus on a story out of r slash opiates, a community with over 16,000 subscribers where users have conversations about all things opiates. If you are not an opiate user, going to that sub can be a little frightening. At first glance, you'll see photos of dope porn, i.e. pictures of drugs that users recently purchased people asking for help on how to pass drug tests, and posts about songs they enjoy while nodding off to heroin. Though, if you look a little deeper, there is a lot of pain and real experience shared there. One of the first times I came across this community was with a confession bear meme. I'm sure many of you have probably seen this meme all over the internet. It features a Malayan sun bear peeking out above a tree trunk. All that is visible is its claws and face, and Redditors usually caption this with mild confessions, along the lines of, I enjoy stealing my roommate's orange juice in the middle of the night, or I secretly enjoy the smell of farts. However, this meme was a bit different. It read, When my mom killed herself, she made comments about how I was a horrible person because I'm a junkie in her suicide note. Whenever I have to crush up a pill or drug to IV, I use the mini urn with her ashes in it just to tell her, fuck you bitch, every time I get high. A user named Opiate Throwaway put it best. I would say that it's a good peek into the life of what it's like to be a heroin addict in the United States. But it isn't all heroin memes. This community offers an important forum for education, community support, and harm reduction to thousands of Redditors with opiate addictions. You'll see warnings about areas with laced heroin, stories about how to cope with the deaths of a loved one due to drugs, and the magical work of Tracy Helton. Tracy is a former heroin addict and the subject of the 1999 HBO documentary Black Tar Heroin, which chronicled the lives of her and five other young heroin addicts in San Francisco. After this documentary was shot, Tracy overcame her addiction, got a master's degree, started a family, and has devoted much of her life to harm reduction for addicts. One of her most effective DIY programs has been the education and supply of naloxone, or Narcan, to prevent overdose. Naloxone is a drug that counters the effects of opiates and can essentially save the life of someone overdosing. Naloxone has no intoxicant effects and is regularly used by hospitals as well as EMT personnel to treat opiate overdoses. Even though naloxone programs have been proven effective to curb overdose deaths, it isn't available for everyone who needs it. 
Currently, only 39 states have passed naloxone access laws, and many of them were a pretty recent occurrence. So Tracy has taken the burden of educating users on the r slash opiates community about the drug, and if they don't have access, she ships them the naloxone herself. We'll speak to Tracy about her story right after a quick word from our sponsor. And now for some thank yous. You're listening to the Gilded Edition of the Upvoted by Reddit podcast, so instead of ads, we're just going to thank you, because we couldn't do this without your Reddit gold. So thanks. Your message in blood. Well, that's an ominous start. Uh, Thank you for your Reddit gold. Cater1210. That's with a K. K K-E-D-E-R-1210. Thank you. Benedict. Uh, It's spelled B-E-N-E-D-1-K-T. Thank you. Mike Will 69 U. Will you, Mike? We don't even know each other. Buy me a drink or something. But thank you for your gold. Uh, Turbo Man. Turbo Man. Thank you. Bald Tiger? No, Bald Tigger. Uh, Because you know what? Even Tigger is going to go bald one day. Probably. Not necessarily, but I mean, probably. And finally, thank you. I wish I was drunk 86. Wow. That's that's special. I love it. Okay, so thank you all. Seriously, your Reddit Gold makes this all possible. So the least we can do is thank you with this early and ad-free edition of the Upvoted Podcast. Hi, my name is Tracy Helton. I was recently featured on Reddit um, as being the heroine of heroin. So I'm from Westchester, Ohio. At the time um, when I was growing up, you could picture sort of rolling fields, um, houses with big yards. There was sheep by my house. There was, I remember one time somebody riding their horse through the neighborhood. Um, and it ended up becoming a a vast suburban area with lots of malls, but not necessarily when I was growing up. Um, my mother was an executive secretary and my father was an engineer. So it was kind of with the 2.5 kids, the kind of life that you picture people living in the suburbs. Even with this perfect suburban backdrop, Tracy's childhood wasn't easy. She was bullied growing up for being nerdy and overweight. She developed depression at an early age and also saw her father battle with severe alcoholism. Well, my father was really my hero when I was growing up. I didn't understand a lot of um you know, aspects of his drinking until I got older. And then um, there was a lot of conflict between my mother and him because, you know, she was constantly trying to get him sober and then he was resisting sort of those efforts. Uh, But, you know, it was, they're from the generation where people don't get divorced. uh, So they tried to work various things out at different times. But as I got, um, you know, older, I became sort of more and more resentful about his drinking and the impact that it had on our family. And um, uh, my father became sort of despondent in the 70s during the Great Recession. He had had a business that he had lost his business. And I don't remember him drinking prior to that time, but I remember, um, you know, things kind of accelerating even when he went back to work. So he would work, you know, 60, 80 hour weeks and travel a lot. And I just remember um, his drinking sort of accelerating with time, sort of peaking um, around the time that I was a teenager. And then um, I left the house, obviously. And, uh, you know, then sort of him having complications, health, health complications related to his drinking that eventually made it. So he became sort of unemployable. Uh, He had a series of strokes. And then also that was from the, the diabetes related to his alcohol use. I started, as a lot of teenagers now do, not so much back then, but um, cutting myself. And uh, I remember being 
diagnosed as uh, having depression, major depression when I was very young. I would walk around with my pajamas on for a week or two at a time. And um, I was sent to a school psychologist uh, who said that I was depressed. And that was kind of unusual to have children that were depressed in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, I also developed um, issues with eating. I became a compulsive overeater uh, starting around the time when I was six or seven years old. And so that's just like a snowball cycle where you're eating and then you gain weight and then you become ridiculed and then you gain even more weight or you lose weight and then you get a lot of attention and then it's kind of overwhelming and then you you end up gaining the weight back because you're stressed out. And so that was um, a pattern for most of my life and still in some ways continuing today where I've been on weight loss programs since I was 10 years old. Um, back then we had everything from machines that were like sort of like table legs that used to go against your stomach to um, herbal supplements. Um, we had the aid supplement at the time, which bas was basically like a, a candy, a chocolate candy that was supposed to be um, make you uh, appetite suppressant. So I've been through, um, you know, just pre almost every weight loss program that's been on the market. So my addiction started um, to different kind of substance. Food started much earlier. Yet surprisingly, in high school, drugs had no attraction to Tracy. She dabbled with alcohol and pot, though they were never really her thing. The only drug experience she had liked was the opiates that the doctor gave her when she had her wisdom teeth taken out at the age of 17. At that time, she was deeply attracted to the numbness and the feeling that for just that moment, all of her problems didn't really matter. After high school, she attended the University of Cincinnati to stay close to home and to quell her anxiety. She soon got involved in an abusive relationship. After the breakup, Tracy wanted to find something to help her cope with that experience, something that would give her what she had had in the dentist chair. After that relationship ended, my self-esteem was so low, I really started you know, hitting it hard, going after work and going to the bars. And I remember thinking back about those drugs that I had tried, you know, trying when I had gotten my teeth pulled in the past. And I started thinking, man, I would kind of like to try that again. And so like any sort of normal American teenager, lots of my friends had access to opioids in the, in the medicine cabinets. And so we hit a lot of those hard. And, uh, and I just remember thinking, I don't really like the way pot makes me feel don't really like the way alcohol makes me feel, but I like the way that the opioids made me feel. And that was something that, uh, it just kind of took off. It really masks those feelings of insecurity, of anxiety uh, and depression. And it makes you feel powerful to a certain extent. Like some people describe the experience of, I finally can talk to people where I'm finally not concerned about what people think about me. But the problem with the opiates in particular is that they, they have diminishing returns. So at first they start out and they, they, they might work for you, but then over time, more of the things that you're hoping they're going to do, they do less and less of that. And they actually start causing the things that you're trying to get away from the anxiety, the depression, the social isolation, because you, that becomes the most important fundamental thing in your life is, is the getting and using the opiates. So naturally, heroin was something that Tracy wanted to try. Yet, in Cincinnati in the early 90s, it wasn't something that was easily accessible. So she and a couple of her friends devised a plan to buy it and try it together. So it wasn't like the drugs that I was interested in doing I was able just to get. So I remember it was a whole big process um, because I was spending a lot of money on, um, you know, my whole paycheck at the bar or whatever. So we had had this, 
you know, packed between me and a few of my friends that we would try to get some heroin. And we finally did a few months later, but it was like $120 for all three of us, which was a lot of money back then. And, uh, it just seemed like the ultimate drug experience in a, in a way, but it was also completely terrifying. It was like jumping out of a, a plane. But the first time that I did heroin, there was a group of us and we were sitting around in a circle. And before I could even do mine, the other person overdosed and then he had to be revived. And then they said, well, do you still want to do it? And I was like, I paid for it. Of course. Yeah, of course I do. And I was so, I was so terrified. So they gave me half of what they gave him and, the experience of being on the drug was just so overwhelming um, because it gives you this huge sense of euphoria. But I have to say that in the whole of, you know, 10 years or whatever of me using hard drugs, you never feel the way that you feel in the very beginning. It's like your brain changes or something changes about the experience and you're, you're constantly chasing your tail trying to go back to what it was like the first few times. And that was really what it was like for me. I never got back to the point where I was just the occasional user again, or I felt really, really good from just using a little bit. It was always kind of like a cycle where I was hoping it was going to be better than it was, but it was, it never was. And even in our early heroin use, the lack of access to clean needles and harm reduction resources created some remarkably dangerous conditions amongst her circle of friends. We would get the same syringe and you people would go around in a circle and this was during the era of HIV, so you can think about how dangerous this was. So we would bleach out the needles in between to where the plunger would get stuck and, like, the needle would be barbed and you would sharpen it on a matchstick and it would stick in your skin like a fish hook. And we would all go around and you would pray that the needle didn't break off in your arm because we didn't have access to clean needles at all. So when it comes to the harm reduction, I know for a fact that not having access to clean needles didn't stop me from, from using drugs. But what did cause her to become a full-blown drug addict was access. On spring break from college, Tracy decided to take a trip to San Francisco. She wound up walking down to Golden Gate Park, copping heroin within the first 12 hours of her arrival, and just never left. At first, it seemed like I was so free, like I had led this life where I was so bunched up and it had been so controlled, like everything in your life was decided for you, like... You're going to go to school and then you're going to get a job and then you're going to have kids and you're going to do this and you're going to do that. Everything seemed so controlled. And then when I came to the city, it seemed like total beautiful chaos until I ended up realizing the kind of things that people who have a, a drug habit have to do to support their drug habit. So right after I got through, I blew through all the money that I had brought with me. Um, I realized that People were panhandling, people were prostituting, people were selling syringes, people were stealing, people were doing, you know, some people worked like marginal jobs. Um, other girls I knew would come to the city and end up working as strippers. Like, there's a lot of things that you have to do to support a full-time drug habit that I had never been exposed to. I sold syringes. Uh, I had a sugar daddy at one point. I did some street prostitution. You tell yourself... Um, a variety of things like, uh, I've been, you know, I've been drunk and slept with someone in the bar before that, you know, I've woke up and there that person is that had happened a few times. Like, how is it any different except for I'm getting paid for? It. And you try to do the minimal amount possible with people, uh, to try and get the maximum amount of money because I mean, fortunately for me, I was young and I wasn't involved in prostitution very long because, um, I met this man who was in his seventies who took care of me for a period of time for actually for a while 
Um, so I didn't have to do a lot of things with the person. Unfortunately, Tracy's experiences are far from unusual. A quick trip to r slash opiates will show you how common these issues and moral dilemmas are. One such post about having sex with a dealer for heroin read, Short on cash, as always, and starting to go into withdrawal, I get the text from a dealer I don't usually go to. He's a bit sketch, but he's friends with my ex's brother. He's hinted around wanting to smash before, but never this direct. I basically said fuck it and had him come over. The sex wasn't bad. I didn't kiss him, and I just took it from behind. He hooked me up with a fat shot and a fat bun. So, yeah, I sunk to a new low. The comments in the thread were mostly about how everybody does what they have to do to afford their fix, and this isn't even covering all the violence that, for the most part, is unspoken. In my using drugs, I've had I've been raped uh, at Civic Center Park in front of the San Francisco City Hall. I've had someone try to kill me. Um, I've had my nose broken like six or seven times. I've had my eye split open. I have a, a, bru- a cut under, over my eye where I had my eye split open. So I was a homeless addict. I experienced significant amounts of violence. And then there's the overdoses. So there was, you know, in the year that I got clean, there were something like 198 overdoses in San Francisco. And I knew a lot of those people. And that really changed sort of my frame of reference about harm reduction and me really wanting to help other people to do something to save their lives because that is really the trajectory that I was headed. I remember in particular one time I walked into, there was a store that I used to sleep by and I had talked to the guy at the store and I was trying to um, teach him ways to remember my parents' phone number so that when I died he could call my parents if he'd heard that I would disappeared so he could call my parents to let them know that I was dead or I was missing because at that point I don't think I had called them for like six months to a year um, because I didn't want them to know that I was using I didn't want them to know that I was you know that I was as serious as a drug addict as I was and I had lost my ID and I remember thinking you know what would it be like for my mom to to just never know where I was, to never know what happened to me. And um, and that, you know, before we fingerprinting and DNA and all those things were at like they are now, that that was a very real possibility. The the feeling of absolute desperation, like you are sinking in a hole of your own making, like you went to the beach and you dug a hole in the sand to make a sandcastle. And you got inside of it, and now all the sand is pouring on your head, and no one can hear you scream. That's what it feels like. Even though Tracy knew there was a chance she wouldn't survive, she still wanted all the pain she felt to have a purpose, at least in someone else's life. So when she met director Stephen Okasaki, casting youths for a documentary that would become HBO's Black Tar Heroin, she knew she wanted to be a part of it. So I met the filmmaker from Black Tar Heroin at, there was a youth needle exchange, and so they were pretty... um, helpful particularly for younger people and it was in um it was kind of like a safe place for me to go and he was recruiting first he hung around for a while and he was recruiting participants and initially he thought I was too old because he wanted people that were a little younger than me and I just remember thinking I really 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 want to find a way to get into this film and not because of any money because we didn't get paid to do the movie but because I wanted people to realize that heroin was not glamorous. Like for whatever reason, my me and my friends thought when we were young that using hair, heroin was glamorous. Like we were going to be like Kate Moss or we were going to be thin 
and look beautiful with her eyes pinned or whatever. And it's like heroin is not that. Heroin is constipation, you know, having no relationships with anyone, spending all your money and all your time sucked into this drug. So I thought if I could get into this movie that that would make my life, um, you know, mean something. It would be my legacy when I was dead because either someone was going to kill me, I was going to die of a homicide, or I was going to end up, you know, dead with no ID in one of the hotels as a Jane Doe. My parents would never know whatever happened to me. And if you haven't seen that film, I would definitely check it out. It's available on YouTube and we'll link to it in the show notes. In Black Tar Heroin, you see Tracy at her lowest point. In the film, you see her going to jail for selling heroin, trying to get clean, lying to her mother, and just when you think she's made it, relapsing. Yet after the film ended, Tracy got arrested for drug possession one last time and ended up being sent to rehab where she would eventually get clean once and for all. So February of 1998, I was in my room in my SRO hotel. It was a terrible hotel that had rats. Not in my room, but they had rats down the hallway and roaches. And I was paying like $900 a month to live in this room. I was selling drugs to support my habit or doing whatever I was doing. But the police knocked on my door and they arrested me. I was on probation. I was actually on probation for like a $20 bag of drugs that I had sold sold a, a few years prior. So when you're on probation, you lose all your civil rights and they had the right to search my room. But they didn't have to. I told them my friend was there and I wanted to make sure that he didn't get charged with the drugs. So I told him all the drugs are mine. And I had a suitcase packed in the closet because what was happening is I had no usable veins left. I was having heart palpitations from cocaine and I was just feeling terrible. And I, about a month or two prior to my arrest, I remember thinking, if I go to jail, because, you know, the probability was high I was going to go to jail, I'm going to ask them to send me to a treatment program because I can't stop. I had tried methadone. I had tried stopping on my own in the months leading up to my arrest. And I remember thinking, like, this might be my last chance. So I took all my new shoes and my new clothes and stuff, and I had put them in a suitcase. And I remember when they clicked the handcuffs on me, I said, I'm not going to take any of that stuff with me because I never want to come back to this life again. I never want to come back to this room, this tenderloin, or this life ever again. And I don't know what's going to happen when they take me to jail, but I know that this isn't, I have to give this a chance. I have to at least try to get clean. So when they took me to jail... I lost like 20 pounds within a few weeks. And so they thought I was seroconverting to HIV positive. And I just remember thinking, even if I am HIV positive, I'm still going to try to get clean because HIV is not the end of my life. But if I continue using, I definitely am going to die. So when she went to rehab, she came with a purpose and was not going to let herself slip up again. One of the things that um, I did in rehab was I really focused on myself and why I was there. So I wasn't there to be friends with everyone. I wasn't there to, um, you know, get in a relationship with someone. I was there to get clean and stay clean and figure out whatever tools I could to try to have that happen. So that was 17 years ago. I, fi I, I finished that rehab and went into sober living in August of 1998. So I went, I think I was thinking about it the other day. Uh, I think that I got my first pass like 17 years ago to go out from the rehab. And since then, she's gone back to school, got a master's degree, got married, had kids, and devoted much of her life to harm reduction. We'll talk about all that right after a quick word from our sponsor. 
You're listening to the Gilded Edition of the Upvoted by Reddit podcast, and this is where I thank a bunch of Redditors who bought gold instead of an advertisement, because you know what? You deserve it. You make this possible, so thank you. Uh, Zethro, I think that's how it goes. It's X-E-T-H-R-O. Thank you, Zethro. I choose the cruciform. Not entirely sure what a cruciform is, but I'm going to Google it right now and find out. Oh, oh, so it's kind of like a crucifix. It means having the shape of a cross or a Christian cross. Okay. Sounds good. I choose the cruciform. You taught me something new today. Thank you. Uh, Jackson530. Thank you for your gold. Beach Geek. Oh, that's that's nice. You like beaches. I don't really care for beaches, but uh, thank you. Uh, James for shame. I'm never going to shame you, James. You don't deserve that. Thank you for your gold, though. Nooks. What about crannies? I couldn't help myself. And finally, thank you. All right. And thank you, Nooks. You're, You're great, too. Uh, not just crannies. And finally, horrible anime. Nothing worse than horrible anime, right? Thank you so much. Your Reddit Gold makes all this possible. And we're just grateful that we get to put out this original editorial content to, I don't know, learn a little bit more about the people who make up Reddit. So, thank you. In 1999, a year after Tracy got clean, Black Tar Heroin came out and was shown regularly on HBO. She actually had to watch it for the first time with a therapist. So I was clean a year when it came out, and people contact me all the time. Um, it's had a second life on YouTube and say how much that movie impacted their life. And some people tell me I didn't use drugs because of the movie. But a lot of people have told me um, that because I did that movie and I'm clean now, that really impacts their life to a greater degree because they see that recovery is possible. Because anyone who would see that film would think that I was going to die you know, at first I was kind of bitter when the movie came out because I was clean. It didn't say in the film I was clean, but I can understand why he didn't do that because, you know, the, the chances were maybe I wasn't going to stay clean. So much tension. People he following me, people contacting me, my mother, people stopping me on the street, stopping me on the bus, calling my job. So it was so much tension. But then I was like, you know what, I'm going to use whatever attention I have for, for positive things. And I'm going to do what I can to try to, you know, raise awareness about addiction, raise awareness about the kind of things that happen to addicts, and also, you know, try to raise money for different causes that I believe in. And that's pretty much what I've done. So that same year, Tracy got really involved with several programs aimed at overdose prevention. You know, I had to do various things like teaching uh, rescue breathing to inmates in the jail, to doing drug education. And around 2003, Uh, San Francisco was one of the first places uh, to do a naloxone program where uh, one of the county doctors would prescribe it and we would give out after training naloxone to people who were using, um, you know, opioids. And so that was has been a very, very successful program and a model for the country. And um, I've done other kind of projects, you know, raising money for different causes that have to do with harm reduction, and then also um, women, women, girls, and men who've been sexually exploited has been another cause that I did a lot of work around in the the late 90s and early 2000s. I also worked um, at a free methadone clinic uh, doing, uh, ca- you know, counseling with people there. For those of you that aren't aware, there has been a huge resurgence in the popularity of heroin in the United States. Just to give you an idea of the scale of this problem, Between 2007 and 2011, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention saw a 150% increase in people who reported that they used heroin in the last year or had a heroin dependence. 
So they say, this, in a lot of the CDC reports and a lot of the media, they say that there's a uh, heroin epidemic in this country. And it's true to a certain extent. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of more people that are using heroin now than we're, than we're using heroin a few years ago. So they say that drugs sort of go in cycles, but this cycle for, for heroin has really um, sort of stuck its teeth in the country because the channels of distributions that the cartel's using um, it's being able to penetrate pretty much everywhere, all you know, all over the country. Now, for um, the price of less than a mixed drink, a person can buy heroin. That goes without saying that people dying from overdoses has increased exponentially as well. According to the CDC, between 2002 and 2011, the rate of people dying from heroin overdoses has nearly quadrupled. Thus, naloxone is a more essential tool than ever in saving people's lives. So naloxone is a drug that um, blocks the effects of opioids in your brain. And so it can temporarily, um, block them in such a way that it can revive a person who's having an overdose. So your breathing becomes depressed. You might get blue lips or, or purple fingernails or, or make sort of a raspy noise. And so your it's a central nervous system depressant and your system starts shutting down. So basically if the drugs are flowing through your brain, um, like a river, it's a dam that shuts that down um, until your body can either metabolize the drugs better or um, you could potentially have an overdose later. But, you know, a lot of people don't. Um, so the naloxone um, wears off in 45 minutes to an hour. And then hopefully that person's in a better position um, to be either taken to the hospital or in or just their body's more able to they've been metabolizing the drugs. And so they're not going to have an overdose. And even though the CDC recommends expanding the use of naloxone as one of its main three responses to the heroin epidemic, many states have no laws granting access to those who need it the most. I am not sure why naloxone is not legal in certain states. So the thing about naloxone is that it does nothing except for reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. So if I were to take it and just stick it in my muscle, it wouldn't do anything. It might give me a, like maybe a light headache, but... There, you know, we've had volunteers who have actually done it to prove that it does. It's not going to do anything else, but it really should be in every first aid kit. Um, but until you know, fairly recently, paramedics and medical staff were the only you know uh, staffs at hospitals were the only people that had access to it. But slowly over time, these layperson programs have proved that third-party naloxone prescribing and also. Just having it available to people, it saves lives there. So anyone can have an overdose. It's not just the junkie who's shaking on the street. Who They're actually in some ways less likely um, because they might be using with someone else or they might have access to naloxone. There's also people that, you know, they, they don't understand if I have surgery and then I have a drink um, and I'm taking this medication, I might have an overdose. So while IV use increases your probability of having an opioid overdose, anyone who's taking opioids potentially could have one. The FDA would need to change the classification, sort of like when they have allergy medications and first you have to get on by a prescription and then you can buy them in the pharmacy. So the FDA would need to tr change it so it's over the counter. But some states have just decided that they're going to they're gonna allow it to be sold in pharmacies and you have to talk to the pharmacy staff to get it. And Tracy has also been spreading awareness through her writing. I have a book coming out, The Big Fix, and I also do a blog, which is, you know, addiction stories, uh, 
under the name Tracy H415. And I'll, I tap into a lot of that when I write because I think that um, part of my pulling people into my harm reduction message is having a connection with them. And when a lot of people read my writings or hear some of my descriptions, they connect with that on an emotional level and they think, well, maybe, you know, I have been in that place. And if she's been in that place and she's not in that place anymore, maybe that's something that can happen for me. So I think all of all of life is really about a connection. And part of what helps people get clean is having that connection. And part of my experience, you know, being a homeless heroin addict is being completely disconnected from everything in society. And so I use that connection to help build people up in whatever way possible. Like I answer all my messages. If I've missed a message, I don't know about it or, you know, something has happened, but I answer all my messages personally, whether it's on Reddit or any other social media. I answer all my emails. I try to give people thoughtful responses because it's really, really hard to send somebody a message and say, you know, I'm using heroin or I used to use heroin. It's And it's important to validate their experience. And I tap into what it was like to be that person, like, just absolutely desperate and having no clue of where you could get started. Like there's a scene in Black Tar Heroin where I say, if I if I knew what to do, I would have already done it. And that's and that's how a lot of people feel. Like I I'm so desperate. If I knew what to do, I would have already done it, but I don't know what to do. It's interesting because people are like, well don't you why don't you want to just forget about all that time that you were using like you know, you have a house now and you have a family and you're, you we're on the PTA and you do all these different things. It's like, I don't want to forget. Like, I don't want to forget what it was like because it's made me who I am as a person. It's changed my life. It's sort of changed my worldview. Like what would have been like if I would have just gone ahead and been the person who finished school and got a degree and had kids or whatever. It's like, not that there's anything wrong with that, but that wasn't a tra- trajectory. It's like the time that I spent in all that misery, it has to mean something. It has to mean something beyond just um, the fact that I was completely self-centered and wanted to pursue this drug. It's like I want it to mean something like it had a greater purpose. It builds a sense of empathy that I have with other people and that I want to try to do what I can for other people because of that experience. That empathy eventually led her to do an AMA on the r slash opiates community on July 30th, 2013. So I was invited by um, one of my readers of my blog uh, to come on there and just see how accurate some of the information that was being given out was in terms of harm reduction. And they said it might be something that, um, you know, some of them might enjoy some of my writings or whatever that I had. So I went on there um, and I lurched for a little while and then I decided to create an account. And then once once someone found out who I was, um, and I don't remember if I how I ended up telling someone, um, but they had asked me to do an Ask Me Anything, and then uh, I started, you know, getting involved in the community and responding to people's comments to the point that they had asked me if I would be a moderator. So that was pretty quick. That was within like a, maybe a month, maybe two. And pretty soon she started sending care packages of naloxone and clean needles to users from r slash opiates who didn't have access locally. Um, I just basically saw that there was a huge need and it was a social injustice. And I decided that on a very small scale, I would try to help uh, a few people out. And it's just, I thought somebody else would take it over by now, but it just kind of um, continued. Um, And that has gone, you know, hand in hand with my continued advocacy. Um, 
you know, speaking out about it using what minor celebrity status I have um, as being a person who was in a documentary that's pretty popular um, to forward the cause of naloxone. The first step is trying to link a person with a local program. So what we want is for the person to be able to go somewhere and get it as legally as possible, either to get a prescription and to see how to use it hands-on. Now, if a person has no ability, because there's some people in their whole state, there's not a single naloxone program, has no ability to get it, the next step is I will have a discussion with them around sending it to them. And then there's videos that are on YouTube that show you how to use it, and I can answer questions. But the videos are very, very comprehensive on YouTube on how to get it. Um, And so one of the things that nationwide um, that people are looking into is actually teleprescribing for naloxone where um, a a person, a pharmacist or doctor could potentially talk to the person and then be then be able to get a prescription for it. People are not um, going in droves to their general practitioner to ask for uh, naloxone because they're afraid of, well, first of all, the stigma, but also if they are pain patients. Um, will they then be cut off of their pain medication? So not everyone who is asking for the naloxone is what you consider a a hardcore user. Some of them are actually pain patients that have concerns about their multiple interactions and they're afraid to ask their doctor for naloxone because they're concerned or the person's spouse or loved one is asking because they're afraid that then they'll cut them off of their necessary pain medications as they find out that they have it. Tracy has even sent naloxone to dope houses or shooting galleries. I have done that a few times. Um, So someone who had some um, linkage, some user would ask me if I'd be willing to send in bulk to places where we call them shooting galleries or dope houses or trap houses where people are coming to buy drugs. So I don't have any contact with whoever the dealer is. Um, I just have contact with someone who's willing to bring it over to someplace. And I don't think that that's necessarily um, a bad idea. I think it's actually a really good idea. It's almost like I wish I, you could install an Aloxone in a place like that. Like people install, you know, the, the hand sanitizer on the wall because it's something that's desperately needed. It's not like, um, you know, some of these places that they have any access to it. And so, What's going to happen is the person I've heard, you know, in my personal experience using drugs, I've known people that were rolled up in carpets that were left to die. Um, People who died because they were left to die. I've known people they went through their pockets and then left them to die. People who are dumped at the emergency room, people who were improperly treated for their overdose and now are, are paralyzed, have, you know, their legs are paralyzed or they have no feeling in one leg. Um, they have neuropathy because they were pinned overdosed for a certain period of time and no one did anything to move them or help them. So, I mean, these are serious medical consequences for not acting. Yet this raises the obvious question. If a heroin user is constantly chasing their first high, wouldn't certain addicts use naloxone as an excuse to use even more? Naloxone doesn't increase your use because, first of all, you can't necessarily administer it to yourself. Second of all, if you've ever seen anyone or heard of anyone or you've personally had been had it administered to you, it is the mo- it is a horrifying experience and I have personally had it done to me. You some people defecate on themselves immediately. Some people use you know they pee on themselves. They you're sent into instant withdrawal. 
you have, you know, stomach pains, your nose starts running, like every possible amount of withdrawal that you can have, it's, it's terrible. And as a matter of fact, but when I first started giving out naloxone at these different programs, I used to walk around, I still sometimes do walk around with naloxone in my backpack. I've seen people who you think are dead get up like that when you say naloxone because it's so what do you think you're you know because they when you hear narcan or naloxone people instantly remember that experience and they will get up because it is such a horrifying experience they don't want that to happen to them again so it's not the kind of thing that um i've never had you know i've been in contact with probably a couple thousand users in the past just in the past couple years really but maybe the past let's just say the past 10 years I've never had a person say, I had the naloxone around because I really wanted to get high and I, I just wanted it there for security. Though not everyone would agree with this statement. Hi, I'm Opiate Throwaway. Uh, I administered Narcan like three times and all, on all three occasions, it's the person uh, got it from Tracy. Yeah, I watched that movie when I was a little kid, man. I remember watching it thinking that those people were so fucked up. And I remember watching it a few years later after I started doing pills. And I was like, oh, that lifestyle looks kind of appealing. And then like a couple of years later, and I'm like living that lifestyle. I think people misusing it makes it a lot harsher than it actually is. Um, I mean, if you IV a large amount of it, it's going to cause you to get really sick but if you do like the right amount in your muscle it's pretty rare that somebody would get really really sick from doing that each time was a little bit different one time the person didn't respond to uh the first like two shots in the muscle so i gave them a little iv and they came back um and they weren't sick because they had done such like a large dose and i had given them just enough to like you know, knock enough of the opiates off of the receptor that they start breathing again. I mean, usually people are pretty angry and combative because, like, they don't believe that they just OD'd because nothing happens, you know. Like, you just, you do your shot, you might feel a really big rush, and then, like, everything just goes black. And then, like, you're all, then you, like, immediately regain consciousness. You don't, like, subtly do it, at least to your own recollection. Recollection. I mean, the last time I administered naloxone, it just kind of fucked with me. Like, watching somebody sit there and turn blue in front of you. Like, it's just, I don't know. I guess some people are better built for it than others, but I'm tired of having people fucking die around me on a regular basis. Opiate throwaways to heroin addict in North Carolina, where, until recently, they did not have any places where addicts had access to naloxone. He uses 150 to 300 U.S. dollars of heroin a day, so he knows the difference between proper and improper administering of naloxone. The most recent time, one of my family members found me and called an ambulance, and they came and they the ambulance administered it, and they didn't administer it in the muscle; they administered it IV, and they administered too much, and it was uh, they they kind of did it on purpose, like or they didn't kind of do it on purpose they did it on purpose just to like make me miserable and it actually sent me into tachycardia which is kind of unusual but i like my heartbeat was like 200 beats per minute when i got to the hospital and they didn't want to give me anything else to like calm me down so i just had to sit there feeling like absolute shit like with my heart 
you know, almost beating so fast that it was damaged. And yet, opiate throwaway still knows people who use naloxone to push their use. I've thought about it, man. I've got these two friends, man, that, I mean, they've overdosed, I don't know, 11, 12 times, and they don't think it's a big deal because they just use naloxone and bring themselves back. It's a couple, and that's just, man, that's sick, man. <laughs> and it makes, like, I don't know, being around them makes me question my lifestyle. I mean, obviously, like, I don't know. I'm probably one of the more reluctant heroin addicts off of the opiate subreddit. I totally, 100% believe it will enable some people, but I think the amount of people that it will save their lives, even if it's just like one person, would greatly outweigh, you know, the people that are going to abuse it. And it's been a lot more than one person. As of this recording, Tracy's shipments have saved the lives of over 120 people. I've sent out, I think, 350 vials or something like that. I usually send two vials per person. So if people have it, they use it. If people have it around, I've heard of people, um, you know, there's some of these people that live in rural areas where it might take the paramedics 45 minutes to them, and they and they get known as the person who has it, and somebody will rush over. Um, I was actually, I used to collect uh, data at one of the sites, uh, for people, you know, after they'd use it and they'd come for a refill. And there was one story about a guy, he was using the bathroom in his, in, you know, down a couple stairs and the air well went to the bathroom above him and he heard somebody up there overdosing and he ran upstairs and revived them from an overdose, someone he didn't even know. And then another person who came back for a refill, he told me that someone knocked on his door and he went upstairs and two people were overdosing and he went up there and he revived both of them. So, it's not, people want to say, they want the ability to save someone's life. Like I think about um, not just people who use heroin, but people who live with someone who might be, have chronic pain issues. I would say about a quarter of the people that I send naloxone to are family, are family members. Uh, a lot of the, maybe even more, because I'm connected with a lot of different family groups and moms groups um, where the family member um, contacts me. Um, some of them contact me through Reddit, but some of them contact me through other avenues um, and they're interested in getting it for their son, for their daughter. And really the people who are making the huge change around naloxone policy in the United States right now are the families because they're the ones that are going to the legislature's office and saying, my son or daughter died. There is a substance available that could have saved them and you're blocking access to it. Or even with, you know, needle exchange and stuff like that. Like my child died. I had a mother contact me. Her child died of sepsis. He's 19 years old because he couldn't get clean needles. Because even though it was legal to send, to sell the needles to him in the state, no place would sell them to him. So it didn't stop him from using. He just ended up using dirty needles and ended up dying from sepsis. It's also important to remember that heroin addicts come in all shapes and sizes. The stereotype of the homeless addict isn't always accurate. I just had a, a person who contacted me recently. We had been corresponding for years. He finally went to rehab, but, you know, he maintained a job and, and was using heroin and was a high-level executive for, you know, at least 10 years, and no one knew that he was using heroin, including his family, who used to see all the time. We actually spoke to a former addict in a similar prestigious job who was saved by a naloxone shipment from Tracy. I'm going by John Doe, and I received naloxone from Tracy that saved my life. I started using uh, about, uh, I guess about three years ago. I got clean in October of last year, 2014. 
I had actually seen the documentary that she was in, uh, the HBO documentary, um, but did not know that she was an active uh, Redditor or, you know, an active uh, harm reduction advocate on the internet and elsewhere uh, until, I guess, about halfway through my use uh, and found her through Reddit, uh, through the ROB at subreddit. I had gotten clean in early 2014, uh, around the same time that uh, my family found out um, decided that they should use that as a reason to get clean and use their support. Um, I was staying at my father's house at the time and uh, stumbled across some more money and, you know, uh, things led to things and I wound up calling my dealer again. He came and swept me up in the suburbs of Atlanta. And uh, we, this is generally when, uh, uh, when overdose occurs, at least a lot of the time in my experience is when you uh, relapse after a long time of not using because you try to use the same amount as you did when you actually had a tolerance. And when you have no tolerance, obviously that amount is going to be far too large. And I overshot it. Uh, luckily, I was in the car with my dealer. He performed CPR on me and uh, injected me with two full syringes of naloxone. I was very much out and slowly brought me back. Uh, so very thankfully, the naloxone was there. And he points out that there are so many things that can cause an overdose, and it's not just as simple as pushing one's limits. I think that heroin users are always going to chase that high. Um, and I think that the risk for overdose is not just chasing the high. Um, a lot of street heroin is buried in its potency. It's not like part of pharmaceutical drugs where there's a set amount of whatever chemical that you're getting that's going to get you high or give you a potential overdose. It varies a lot. A lot, a lot. It always varies on, you know, whatever's coming through town or what the dealer cuts it with or whatever. So the chance of overdosing is not just trying to chase that high. It's possibly, you know, injecting just a little bit of something that's far too potent and you can overdose from that too. So I think there's, you know, I think there's many reasons to, to have it. And it's important to keep hope. If someone like Tracy or John can get clean, anyone can. I was living in a motel for, for a couple months, just shooting heroin and, and cocaine together, you know, doing what's called a speedball, which is pretty much a death sentence. I was up to about 200, 250 a day. Um, I blew through $40,000, I believe, in like a matter of a month and a half. But I didn't die, and I, I, I made it clean. So we can't forget that these addicts are all human beings. Each one of these people is someone's son or daughter. So we had Tracy read some of the emails and messages she's received from people who used her naloxone shipments. Thanks as always. One of my last saves was a 17-year-old girl, and the other was 23 and pregnant. Um, then there was another girl that was 32, and she has an 8-year-old daughter, and now they're in a program. If only people knew what you were doing and how many people's children, parents, brothers, sisters, cousins, grandparents, grandchildren you had saved. I'm clean at the moment, but you have saved me twice. My dad has made a save as well as he used the Narcan on me. Um, and so if you want to send me, send me some, he wouldn't mind hitting the streets too. This is a person I met through Reddit. Hey girl, I want you to know there's a nice Christmas present for you. Um, you're the reason I'm clean now. I've been holding out to speak to you until I knew for sure. But the fourth, it'll be one day before my birthday. And that's my sober date, seven months. Anyway, I wanted to let you know because I watched the movie and I met you on Reddit and I talked to you for a year and a half before I actually got clean. 
So I that's another thing I do on Reddit is I, I talk to people and try to help them get clean and link them to resources. My dad saved my life with the Narcan that you saved me on Friday. When I first started getting it from you, he would always find it and he would throw it away. He thought that it was BS that I had it. I always told him if that he ever needed it, he would be happy that we had it. While I overdosed at his house and he used it. The paramedics and the doctors all told him I wouldn't have made it if he didn't give it to me when he did. Now he's a believer. I think it's important for people to get Narcan from you and to educate those around them because those are the people that will be using it. If you ever want my dad to assist you in an interview or you want a quote from him, he'd be happy to do it. Now he realized that it saved my life and he's an advocate for it. I get I get choked up. I just feel like, you know, in the world we want to do something positive and I wake up every day and I try to do something positive, whether it's, you know, being polite to someone or answering their, their questions when maybe someone else will, you know, won't. There's things that I, I like to do that just make the world a better place. And I don't think it takes much. It doesn't have to take going to the lengths that I did necessarily. But one of the things that um, I particularly like about Reddit is there are so many venues for people to interact and do positive things for other people and provide support. You know, even if it's jokes in some cases, but like really trying to, um, you know, link with people. And so, and so much now in the world, we feel disconnected. And so part of my life is really maintaining a connection and creating a connection with people around me. Amen to that. This was a very heavy episode and a subject that we've thought a lot about while putting it together. I'll share my final thoughts after this last word from our sponsor. And you're listening to the Gilded Edition of the Upvoted by Reddit podcast. Not only is it a day early, but it is also ad-free because your Reddit gold makes all this possible. It's really the least we can do. Just give a little thank you. So... Thank you. Uh, and now for some individual Redditors we're going to thank. Uh, let's see here. Flaccid Phil. Okay. That's a bit of an overshare, but all right. Flaccid Phil, thank you. Uh, you are killing me. I hope I'm not, but thank you. Miss Kate 577. Thank you, Miss Kate 577. Um, MMCDX. Uh, yeah. Thank you. That, I hope I hope I pronounced that right. Um, yeah. That's... Uh, I think those are Roman numerals, aren't they? Yes. What does that mean? 2410. Okay. This is some kind of message from the future. Well, thank you, MMCDX, or 2410, for those not Romanly, Romanly, Roman numerally inclined. Um, Molly Moon, and that's Molly underscore Moon. Thank you, Molly Moon, for your gold. Pajarosak, Pjarosak, I don't know, P-J-A-R-O-S-A-K. Thank you. And finally, Charlie Wikes. Charlie Wikes, thank you for your reticle. All of this makes this podcast possible, as well as all the original content we do, and we're grateful for it. So I hope you enjoy the rest of this podcast, and thanks for listening. While analyzing this story, it's important to remember that Tracy has saved over 120 lives. She receives the naloxone through donations or by purchases paid for by donations. She does this all by herself, and if you want to write to her or send her a PayPal donation, you can do that at Tracy415 at gmail.com. That's Tracy with an E. T-R-A-C-E-Y 415 at gmail.com. You can also reach out to her directly on Reddit via PM. Her username is Tracy H415. Again, that's with an E. T-R-A-C-E-Y 415. 
It's also important to keep all this in perspective. The total number of lives Tracy has saved is still roughly equivalent to the number of deaths from heroin overdoses in a single day in the United States. We also have to remember that overdose isn't the only form of death for heroin users. You have the crime in order to sustain the habit, the health complications, the diseases one can get from IV drug use. They're all potentially lethal. Providing addicts with naloxone is just a small piece of the fight against the heroin epidemic in our country. We need more resources devoted to treatment, the development of non-psychoactive drugs to combat addiction, and to educate the everyday person about the path that leads people to that state. According to the CDC, people who abuse or are dependent on opioid-based painkillers are 40 times more likely to develop a heroin addiction than the average person. This is roughly 20 times the rate for alcohol or marijuana. We have to hold pharmaceutical companies responsible for peddling products they know are addictive and incentivizing overconsumption of these drugs. We also have to take a long, hard look at depression and mental illness. Are we doing our best to remove the stigma from this, to incentivize treatment, and figure out what the root of the problem is? I don't really have answers, but maybe Bernie Sanders does. Now, I'm sure I'll hear from plenty of you asking how a community like r opiates can be condoned by Reddit Incorporated. In fact, several subscribers in that community were worried about r opiates getting shut down when we were trying to find users who received naloxone from Tracy. John Doe and Opiate Throwaway were really, really brave for talking about their lives and their experiences, and we really appreciate them sharing their perspective. It takes a lot of guts to tell tens of thousands of people about the darkest moments in your life. That being said, r slash opiates does have value. Now, we don't allow illegal content on Reddit, but we don't have a problem with people discussing illegal activity. That's an important distinction. It's especially important for this community because when you're an addict, where else do you really have to turn to find companionship, solace, community, and really crucial information that could mean the difference between life or death? This is the kind of speech we always want to fight for. It may not always be pretty, but it can have a tremendous value to the people who need it. If you enjoyed this episode of Upvoted, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Pocket Casts, or Overcast. Maybe even leave a review. We'd love that. Also, be sure to sign up for Upvoted Weekly, which is our magical newsletter that comes out every Sunday morning. You can sign up at reddit.com slash newsletter, and it's a double opt-in because we care about your email inbox. Uh, This week, we featured a man called in for jury duty with President George W. Bush, uh, the thrilling adventures of a superhero called Florida Man, and a clip of Ronda Rousey getting caught in a submission hold by a cute little boy. She actually did a great AMA on Monday, so if you haven't already seen it, check it out. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Let's talk about it in the comments on r slash upvoted. And we'll see you again next week on Upvoted by Reddit.